In keeping with our tradition of making the show topical, this episode was recorded 13 days after the release of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. We're releasing it now, just over four months later. Still, we do discuss the movie at length, and as such, this is your spoiler warning. I haven't actually watched the movie, so... (laughs) (laughs) But, But I'm willing to provide some commentary. This, this will never, never air. air. All right. <laughs> no, I, I, are you just gonna go into the trailers? the past? <laughs> well, let's start with how many times have you seen it? Uh, just one. Also, just one. Just one. I thought about seeing it a second time. Does that count? No. I I will probably go see it a second time with with my dad, but uh, Angela and I just opted for a movie date night. I saw it twice, once in 3D and once in plain old 2D. How was your 3D experience? Um, Which flavor of 3D was it? Was it, was it 3D, IMAX, uh, super duper, uh, you know, the ridiculous one? or It was real 3D, which is not... Oh, real, re- oh. real D, 3D. Yeah, something like that. Um, I don't, I don't know why, but I stopped noticing the 3D most of the way, like, well, probably after 10 minutes, I don't even notice it's in 3D anymore. Except for this movie at the beginning, I could tell it was 3D because it looked really bad to me. Mm -hmm. Everything was blurry and... But it starts off with those really wide, wide shots that may not uh, adapt as well to the post-processing that they do yeah i don't think it was natively shot in 3d i don't think a lot of movies are so yeah probably whatever conversion they do i have this debate about the 3d thing now every time i I don't find that it adds much because like mike within 10 minutes of virtually any 3d movie unless they do one of those like corn reel things where you know the, the spike is coming at your face i pretty much forget this in 3d at the same time i sort of feel like I think for most of these movies that the 3D version is supposed to be the canonical theater experience. And so I feel like maybe I should do the the 3D and pay for it. And I certainly am never going to watch 3D at home. So I end up going in 3D, but I don't ever think I get much out of it. That's definitely the case. Like, it's definitely the top billing goes to the 3D version. Like, the at the theater I went to, the 3D version was also the version that had Dolby Atmos and all of that. I was just like, eh... I just don't think it's worthwhile. It's it's interesting to me because very few films include any native 3D elements, even for shots that are almost entirely computer generated. Uh, you know, it's almost all done as a as a post process. And probably someone who knows film could uh, be on the call, but they're they're busy. Busy watching a movie. <laughs> no doubt. In in 2D. Yeah, mm. like an animal. <laughs> A very flat animal. So no one else saw it in 3D? That's what we're saying. I I, I saw I it in Cinerama. I don't even know what that is. Uh, I saw it in Digital 2D. Cinerama is, uh, is Paul Allen has too much Microsoft money <laughs> and bought an old movie theater and fixed it up into like the super wide projection. Mm. So it's not IMAX, but it's... Um, it's like large the old format. style, large format, yeah. 70 millimeter or something? 
I, I guess I'm I'm not sure exactly, but it's it's a very nice theater, and it's a it's a single screen, a uh, single auditorium, yeah. um, theater right in downtown Seattle. That's that's really nice. One, one thing I really miss now that I've moved from Providence to Baltimore is that I used to have an Atmos theater relatively nearby, and I don't anymore. We've got like Cinemark has its branded like super experience, but I can't really tell other than having slightly nicer seats and reserved seatings what the difference is. Because um, it doesn't seem to have particularly special sound or anything like that, um, which is a bummer. So I, I did see it in, I think, Real D, 3D, I guess is the term, um, but not in like the super special theater. Oh, no, wait. I saw this one in an AMC. It may have Atmos. I'd have to check. <laughs> I forgot I saw this on Long Island uh, with my dad because I, I waited an extra week so I could see it with him um, like I did last year for Force Awakens. Yeah, I saw mine in plain old DLP, so... Yeah, same here. I I have a blanket rule against watching movies in 3D. So uh, let's start with the big elephant in the room, the thing that's uh, that's upsetting everybody. There's no crawl. There was no crawl. Um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice, but it didn't really bother me. That that uh, falls in the category of uh, I think Gruber was the first person I heard speculate that that would be the case, and. Uh, I think it makes sense. I mean, it, it'll it'll make more sense as more of these come out. The this the a Star Wars story, which is not a subtitle I particularly appreciate, but um, yeah, it's a little it's a little unwieldy. It it was definitely jarring to not to get the Lucasfilm and the a long time ago, and then no fanfare, no crawl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that was the right decision. Yeah, I think it helps the film stand on its own a little bit better. And yeah, yeah, as the film progresses, it becomes more and more clear that it is not a conventional Star Wars film. So mm-hmm. with that hindsight, it made a lot more sense. Yeah, the um, I, I think if it had uh, a crawl, then having each of the planets um, it, given a name tag when they first appeared uh, probably wouldn't have needed to happen. But I thought the planetary name tags was a little unnecessary too because like i don't it remember seems... the names of the planets and i don't need oh, to yeah. so yeah absolutely the the only one i can remember is uh jetta and it the the name tag seemed really jj abrams yeah which is weird yeah it it's... definitely felt like something borrowed from the new trek movies especially mind... uh, into darkness yeah i mean i didn't mind the no crawl thing i think to some degree it makes sense to have some sort of formal separation. I feel like they should have gone all the way, though, and gotten rid of uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. Like, that feels like that plus the Lucasfilm, all that other stuff, you're setting up too much of that existing thing. I almost wish they had come up with a different thing that they're going to do for all these Star Wars stories to start it off rather than sort of doing half the deal. Um, as I can a see that. Although we already lost the 20th Century Fox and thankfully did not gain a Disney castle. Oh, God, it would be awful with a Disney <laughs> castle. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the, I think the planet labeling brings up an interesting thing because this happened really quickly in, in the in the movie, which was sort of the number of um, scenes, the number of places that they set up for action to occur simultaneously right from the beginning felt pretty unique to me. I mean, I feel like in a lot of Star Wars they're only ever in one place at a time um, when they're even doing flash, you know, to different 
characters like an empire where they do that a lot of it feels pretty grounded in two different places whereas here they really were trying to develop a bunch of different places at once and that was one of the first things that felt pretty tonally different to me um and maybe i realized it more because of the name tags uh that they were providing but what did you guys think about like that opening having like three or four different locations at once it was a little uh confusing it was kind of a whirlwind it's like oh we're gonna hop over here now we're over here now we're back over here and just back and forth and back and forth, and I was kind of like losing my mental I, I like, like timeline of where we were. Yeah, I can I can see that. I I liked it for for two reasons. Uh, one is that it it feels a little bit more, um, for lack of a better term, modern. Like uh, like we're 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 expecting a little bit more of the audience, and that's okay. Um, but then also, um, I I think it produced some of my absolute favorite shots of the entire movie, which were these super wide, like ship on approach to planet sort of shots. Like that first one where, um, Krennic's, uh, Imperial shuttle, like skims the planetary rings and, and goes down to land at, um, at the Urso homestead on whatever planet that was. I don't remember. <laughs> Lamu. Lamu. That was the one I didn't catch. Um, I know. I know the. I think I. I can keep track of the other ones. But uh, there were a couple shots like that that um, were just, you know, whoever storyboarded those and and then put those shots together, like really captured um, the kind of feel I want from a space movie in general. Yeah, it's a little bit two thousand one esque in its kind of. Uh... Yeah grandeur yeah maybe maybe yeah grandeur is is a good is a good term for it um but uh i definitely have heard from uh friends and family who have seen it that 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 opening was both um very confusing uh and poorly paced and i disagree with both of those sentiments and i don't know how you guys feel in that area i think Uh, it would have been maybe uh felt more appropriately paced if they hadn't included the names for the planets because having the names for the planets seemed to suggest that they would be important and like a thing to remember so then i was focused on like trying to remember what happened on which planet and it wasn't really important to care about that so um like if i hadn't had to think about that either consciously or subconsciously during the movie it might have made more sense would have been able to go with the quick pace of it better Right. Well, I, I think some of that is because this is bo- this is like adjacent to another genre, which is that it's sort of a, a heist film as compared to the space opera slash fantasy elements of the 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 primary crawl bearing uh, Star Wars episodes. You know, this this is this felt more like a heist movie. So the slower pacing at the, at the beginning was was somewhat about you know building the team and, and putting together that that heist aspect. So this brings up one of my criticisms, which was like the um, the whole existence of sort of Jin's backstory and the flashback that happens early onto that planet. Um, a couple of things that I felt like could have made things much tighter. One, I just thought it was really weird how 
they mirrored in a lot of ways the Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru kind of feel and scene. They're farmers. It's a green area, but otherwise you could practically rip those scenes right out of A New Hope, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I think even more importantly, like there was no need to have her be on some other planet. We don't know if it was a backwater or not. It could have been on Jeddah, which I think would have made the most sense because here's a scientist, his expertise in this particular type of crystal. That crystal seems to be pretty much mined on Jeddah and nowhere else, or at least that's the large source of it. Um, so that's where his expertise is. That's where they end up with the action when she gets older. I, I don't know what the added value was of placing that in yet another setting with yet another like single ecosystem planet for a short period of time in a flashback that felt like it mirrored things we've seen many other times before as part of the origin story. Um, and so it was kind of, a, for me, an indicator of things to come where they could have made things just a little bit tighter. It just didn't have to be that loose in an attempt to make it expansive because I think, and maybe this foreshadows a little bit of my view, but when the movie went narrow, which was its... Um, sort of what it was free to do by being one of these not in the saga stories that's when things went best and i think the beginning with the hop to different planets with the name badges with even just having another place that didn't seem like it needed to be for any reason another place was an attempt to make it more expansive than the story really supported um in the attempt to live up to star wars um yeah i think i think i have i i think i disagree because um it's building like like you touched on it's it's building a very different uh sort of story so i think it's it's okay that we were somewhere else and you know it was in that particular context it was important that galen or so um go you know, he was he was fleeing the empire um more or less i mean we we had that other flashback to what looked like maybe coruscant um when you know before he left the first time with a very young with a very young jin um, and so it, it, it makes sense to me that he would have fled somewhere that wasn't Jeddah and they didn't want it to be one of the sort of known, um, you know, they didn't want to go back to the Tatooine well, even though, as you said, they had the, uh, standard issue moisture farmer kit, um, yeah, I mean, I actually spent time thinking, like, this is a pretty lush planet, but everything here looks like uh, it's moisture farming equipment to me. Um, so what exactly are they farming out here? Um, but, I mean, my point on Jeddah is, like, Jeddah, I think, is presented a bit backwater, even though it appears to have been really important to the um, Republic that came before the Empire. At the same time, like, that is also where the last vestiges of um jedi and force worship or whatever you want to call it seems to have an influence um and clearly one of the main rebels is still staked out there so although there's an imperial presence there by the time we fast forward 20 years later it seems to me like it would have been sufficient as a, as a location and so maybe they didn't want to start on a desert planet once again um, or something like that but then i feel like that's a lack of imagination about what the planet jedda could have been because there's no reason why a mining planet has to have a desert climate so I guess that's my, my major thing here is I feel like they could have tightened it up. So the, the mining planet thing, like, is it is it strictly a mining planet? Because my understanding was it wasn't so much that the crystals were mined there, but that they had been gathered there in the city of Jeddah by the Jedi in the past. And so the the Empire was busy stripping every already mined crystal that they could find that was stored there. Yeah, the, that could be. I, go ahead. The impression I got was that... Um, the the reason 
they started using them to begin with uh, for the the lightsabers was because there was a high concentration that happened to be on Jeddah. But uh, yeah, you're correct from what I'm reading. I, so I I think it was um, initially I, you know completely headcanon because I have not read any of the uh, additional materials. But uh, what I imagined was that it it was just kind of coincidental that there were uh, were so many there. And the the Jedi started using them, but uh... yeah. So I am reading from the additional resources, and yeah, <laughs> basically the the um, Jedi, which is a moon, has uh, kyber crystals in its crust, and the Jedi basically mined all of them and gathered them, and then the Empire took advantage of all the work that the Jedi had done in the past and stole all the crystals, more or less, after they had already been mined. So to shoot them across the galaxy to a refinery facility that for no reason whatsoever, could be where the Jedi gathered these things to be used for other purposes. Yeah, well, that's know. the research planet. you gotta have a, you got to have <laughs> right. a planet for prisons and a planet for research and a planet for mining and, you know... And each planet for data storage. Well, exactly. And, and so this is my complaint, and I think it's been a complaint about the Star Wars universe in general, and I'm just surprised in a movie that I think shed a lot of um, baggage that could come along with Star Wars, that they didn't shed this baggage too, which is that each location is a single ecosystem planet with a single purpose that they do and there's no reason why the facility on scarf i think it was called or scarf or something like that Scarif. like scarf yeah, like, definitely that, not scarrow like, yeah, that's the that... uh, that's the data storage planet yeah oh no i'm thinking of the the um the refinery you know rain Edu. pouring down the crag and rocks Edu. Edu. like <laughs> so think about these three main opening planets right where jin grows up where you know, Jetta and then Edu. There's no reason why those couldn't have just been three different ecosystems that coexist on the same planet, and it would have made sense. And I think that going small would have been a nice decision here because what we have is something very character-driven where the ending is preset and where we're getting to see what it's like to be regular people under the thumb of the Empire and beginning to to rabble around and, and gather up in this rebellion. And I felt like, why am I going and shooting off to all these places just so that you can show off your green screen skills? Well, there was also that um, asteroid trading post that was an additional location, which maybe that was... That, that, I that one I can buy the unnecessary argument. That's where uh, we are introduced to Captain Andor. Um, all right, yeah. It's where we learn he's a real bad dude because he shoots first like Han. Yeah, I mean, or at the very least, he's he's uh, you know escape at any cost. So losing the injured guy is no problem for him. Anyway, I realize I'm sounding negative and keeping us in the first parts of the movie, but I, it was just one of the things that struck me right away was that I felt like we were jumping from a lot of scenery and kind of once again, Star Wars is a universe filled with planets with one ecosystem and one purpose. Um, so just jumping off something, uh, you said, Jason, I think as far as, you know, I, I mentioned that it felt like a, a little bit of a heist movie where we were building the team. I think you touched on this, but, but the introduction of Cassian, uh, Captain Andor, I think was maybe the weakest of the character introductions because of that weird, like back alley informant vibe to it. Like he... I feel like maybe he needed an earlier introduction before that, like maybe getting dispatched on his mission or, or something to that effect. Uh, whereas I liked I liked the way we met the other uh, members of the team. They it felt much more in character. Whereas whereas his introduction 
I guess was supposed to establish his key conflict with Jin later in the movie. Um, but it didn't, I, I felt like it was the weaker of the introductions. Yeah, I mean, I think it was supposed to establish the character arc we were supposed to see in his growth. And frankly, I didn't care about that character arc. And I'm not sure that we got enough in the beginning to really feel the pull of that shift or change. Um, it, I think it definitely was the weakest. I agree. Yeah. Oh, and, and related to that, um, you know, he had those uh, meaningful looks on the way to Edu after he got the, the final kill order from um, General... Uh, What's his Draven, apparently. Um, so, so that made me think. I think one of the reasons they like having those those distant locations is that it allows them to have these long, uh, in hyperspace um, downtime in between action uh, set pieces. You know that 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 uh, sitting on a ship in hyperspace is the established Star Wars way of uh, having character development conversation so given that um the ship was kind of boring on the inside don't you think like i don't think there was a lot of memorable ship design here which was interesting given that it's really right before the period of of a new hope and it, it i guess to some degree they were repeating ship designs because of that but i feel like for a ship that we spent a lot of time in it was a pretty remarkable unremarkable in terms of its um layout in terms of its uh features of interest i don't, I don't remember much about it which is interesting. yeah i think i think um i think you're right i think the the imp- stolen imperial cargo shuttle that they used later in the movie was a better was a better design than the u-wing the u-wing pretty much felt like they took the uh clone era troop transport with the you know the sliding doors and and mashed it up with an x-wing uh and that was kind of where the design stopped. Um, I, I I don't think they really showcased, for example, the 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 whole the wing, uh, the U wing deploying the S foils. I suppose they are. Uh, uh, you know, they they only popped in and out once or twice. And I I was surprised that that ship crashed on Edu. Like I I kind of expected the ship to go with the story for longer. Um, yeah, I mean, it was partially forgettable just because it disappeared so soon, right? Yeah. Like, it was like, oh, I guess that's that ship then. All right, they're going to have to find something else. So, and, yeah. I mean, it seemed like a, a really small ship, and uh, just the, the shots of it reminded me of, the, like, the interior of a, a military cargo plane, which doesn't make sense for something that small. I was so focused on Jin's story and her, the meeting with her father that I didn't realize until the second viewing they actually switched shi- switched ships. <laughs> I was like, I I thought they somehow repaired the other one, and then I'm, in the second viewing I'm sitting there, I'm like, wait a minute, he just said the ship is unrepairable. And then they get to the part where they're stealing one. Well, they need something for the former pilot to do, right? She switched ships by the seashore. I, I think that kind of underscores a uh, lot of points about the movie. Um, for me, it, they just, there were a lot of things that uh, seemed like they were really forgettable. Hmm. Like I, I keep having to look up Cassian's name. Cannot remember it to save my life. 
I wonder if some of that is that um, so far all of the other movies have mostly reused uh, names and locations that we're very familiar with, uh, whereas this was a lot of new locations and a new ensemble that, uh, as we'll get into, does not persist past this film. And they weren't consistent in using the name. Sometimes it was Cassian, sometimes it was Andor, and and that they did that with multiple characters, and I just couldn't keep track of everything. I don't think I even heard um, either of uh, Chirrut or Malbus's names in the dialogue. You know, so so the two um, the, uh, the Church th- of the Force guys from from Jeddah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know their names either because I yeah you know, I just don't think they were ever actually mentioned. Yeah. So that brings up a good point, which is, so we've got this ensemble cast. We've already talked about not really like uh, Cassius's, uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, you got, you heard me right. Uh, his like entrance and introduction to this world. And so now we're talking about some of the other characters whose, whose names are forgettable to some degree. We're, there are too many characters in this movie. I've sort of already stated, I think there were too many locations. Do we think there were too many characters? I think in the frame of this being a heist movie, it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, well, any other heist movie where there's the crew. You know, it's a little bit like a Mission Impossible film. You have the different people, and they all specialize in the different tasks that they need to do. So, right, you, uh, you had you sense. had the sharpshooter, the heavy gunner, the um, the martial artist, the leader. Yeah, it's like a game of Team Fortress Two or something. I don't know. Yeah, or or, or an RPG. Um, yeah. It's, it's 2016. You're supposed to say Overwatch. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> er, so, which one is Tracer? So, I mean, it certainly fits the heist movie format. Do you think? Do we think that they use it well? I mean, I think you guys did a pretty good job of identifying the different roles that people play. But I have this sense that we could have collapsed two characters. I think we could have collapsed the um, Imperial pilot and. Uh, Captain Andor potentially, or maybe we could have collapsed the two um, Church of the Force characters it, it, again. And maybe it's a timing or pacing, or that we don't have other movies um, to see with these folks. But it it just felt like it wasn't as tight, and that it took away from having a movie where I felt more about each person, and I felt more certain that they each actually had a role to play beyond one scene. And to some degree, some of these characters are really played for their role in maybe one scene. Yeah, I I think really only the um, the last eh, I wouldn't wouldn't even say half maybe a quarter to a third of the movie is a heist movie because there there really wasn't you know standard heist movie you have okay here's what we're gonna go do then you have uh, planning and then training and then going and doing it and it was like half of the movie before they even had okay here's what we're gonna go do. And I really yeah, miss you. I personally really miss the lack of a planning and training montage in this movie, to tell you the truth. Like, I think that would have been a really interesting thing to see. And um, I felt gypped <laughs> in, to some degree because it was the way they were setting things up. And I think by having that many characters um, with specialized to some degree roles, it would have been really interesting to see them each go through here's exactly why i'm unique to the plan that we have and need to be here which i think is like the critical part of showing that planning and training it's justifying each character's role and i just we didn't get that 
So um, before we dive more into the into the characters, I'm I'm kind of curious, like where if if you can consider this comparable with the other um, you know primary episodes, uh, how does how does this rank for you? Given given these criticisms, uh, I would put it at probably my fifth favorite. <laughs> so just ahead of the prequels, I assume. The the what? Oh, sorry. I forgot which uh, timeline we were on. I, I thought this was a prequel. Um, yeah, it's. I don't know. It, it, I, I liked it, and you know, obviously, I saw it twice. Um. I liked it, but it didn't stick with me like uh, Episode Seven or the original trilogy did. Is the thing, but it's it stuck with me more so than the prequels, I guess. That, but maybe that's also down to the fact that, like, this is a complete story and it's kind of forgettable because, like, I don't have to remember what happens because it's not like we're going to meet these characters again. So that's true. I mean, like when I watched The Force Awakens. When I got home, I went on Amazon and I got the the books that go with it, the cutaways of the ships, and um, there's the prequel or pre the stories of um, the um, the three major characters from the Force Awakens. I can't remember the name of the book, but I you know I picked up all those because I wanted to know more, and I know the next movie is two month or two years away. With this one. You know, I kind of got the whole story pretty much in the first viewing. I mean, obviously there's things I missed, but, you know, if I, I, the reason I went to the second viewing was because one of my family members couldn't go to the first one. So I promised him I'd go with him to the second one. And if that wasn't the case, I probably would have only gone once because I, I pretty much got everything I wanted out of this movie. Yeah, what are some I, other thoughts there on ranking order? I I um I would put this uh, fairly high. I mean, um, I I don't think it it beats the Force Awakens in some ways, but I I think I had more. Um, although although you you all have made some uh, some valid some valid points that I that I am reconsidering a little. I I think uh, my complaints about the Force Awakens were a little more than with this movie. Um, but I, I think I, in general, especially because of how it fits in the canon, I, I like Force Awakens more. Um, I think this, for me, fits pretty solidly in the middle of the original trilogy in terms of... Um, and I, I think it's because... Um, uh, maybe I'm getting um, fooled a little bit by the more modern uh, filmmaking techniques and styling not just i don't i don't mean like the quality of the special effects because i think this movie actually did a very good job of capturing the original trilogy's feeling of everything feeling a little bit more used and broken in as as opposed to the off criticized shininess of the prequels i i yeah i guess and and i think maybe also just the the um you know the doomed mission aspect uh, appealed to me for some reason, um, and and the way they uh, very tightly coupled it into you know what what I would consider the first you know Star Wars, uh, w- w- which is now named A New Hope. You know the way it the way it the ending uh, fits so nicely into that, and and they managed to kind of 
retcon things a little bit uh, without really throwing a wrench in some of the backstory that we've known for 40 years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a good movie. Uh, it's a good star Wars movie, but it's also sort of this new thing where, where, like I said, they're pulling in elements of, of like a heist movie or, or maybe some kind of, um, you know, almost, almost like a JRPG party building element. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it is harder, I think, to rank relative to the other star Wars movies just because of how different it is you know but you know we have we have only two samples of a modern in the um filmmaking sense star wars movies um because the prequels were you know so lucas and so off in their own kind of thing um that even though they were newer they don't really compare in the same way i I don't know does does that make sense that this kind of you know it's it's hard to tease apart like the the specific plot elements from the way it fits into the the greater universe, it 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 felt more like some of the um, the one-off EU novels, I guess, in film form, in a good way. Yeah, I mean, this film is informed by the fact that it basically fills a hole between the third and fourth episode, so you know what happens before and after it, more or less. Uh, so it's hard to rank it with that consideration in mind. I think. Um, it's not like the, um, you know, episode seven and the coming episodes, which are, uh, you know, we have absolutely no idea what they're going to come up with with next. Like even the prequels, you knew what the end result ultimately was going to be because you had the original trilogy for reference. But yeah, so this kind of slots nicely in there. Yeah, I think it was I think it's a pretty good movie. I think it's certainly better than the prequels were. Um, I don't think it's as good as The Force Awakens was, in my opinion. Um, I enjoyed that movie a lot more, probably because it was a lot of new material uh, and a lot of exciting new characters that we get to see a lot of. And I was uh, ultimately kind of surprised by this movie and the fact that they basically killed everyone at the end. I thought that was kind of un-Star Wars-like. And I don't think I really like that a whole lot. I don't dislike it a whole lot either, but I don't... I'm not a huge fan of it. So um, I think it's interesting... Uh, some people have said to view this as kind of a war film, which uh, there hasn't really been in the Star Wars collection of movies. <laughs> if you think of it from that perspective, and certainly the way that the battle on Scarif was portrayed, um, it's a lot more interesting to think about it in that way, I think. And it's um, kind of an interesting addition to the collection of Star Wars films um, that are mostly these space opera kind of things. And then there's this one, which is really gritty, and it uh, reminds me of a lot of World War II films where it's portrayed as, um, you know, uh, an impossible fight against a overwhelming enemy. Uh, and there's probably no hope for survival. So uh, I don't know. That's my I didn't I guess I didn't really answer your question by ranking them directly. But that's my answer. Yeah. But uh, something you said, I, I think uh, you're onto something. This this is, feels uh, more than I realize, maybe cribbed from uh, the Dirty Dozen. Um, like in a in a pretty big way, you know, where uh, you, you, this ragtag group is assembled for their special skills to uh, raid a, uh, in that case, Nazi uh, compound. And um, as I recall, most of them don't make it out. Yeah, I, I found it, um, the World War II film with which I'm probably the most well-versed is Saving Private Brian. And this had a lot of parallels to that as well. And that, you know, 
Saving Private Ryan also assembles a little squad and most of them get killed in the process of going through their mission. Um, and it's a very tragic kind of movie that I see a lot of similar themes in Rogue One from that from that film. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see the um, the war movie aspect to it uh, a lot more than heist movie. Um, when we were uh, leaving the theater, I told Gwen that it was um, uh, it was like watching Halo Reach. It had had a lot of parallels. You know, it comes before um, something that a lot of people. Uh, no, they they've played what comes directly after it. They've never heard of the characters before, so you know they're not going to make it. It it definitely seems more in line with with war as opposed to heist. That that feels a lot more. You know, it, it's not missing as much if you look at it, at it that way. So, where would you rank it? Oh, fifth. I I thought it was a, an enjoyable movie to see, but I don't really feel compelled to watch it again. Um, I think it says a lot that there is so much that just wasn't memorable. You know, from I, I've only seen The Force Awakens once, but I can remember lines from that. I think yeah. that's a good point too, which is that um, you know, like I would go back and watch The Force Awakens, but I'm not sure that I would feel the need to watch this again because I feel like I got the gist of it. Basically, so, I, I understand what happened from it, and I don't really need to re- review or anything. So I think I might put this one above Force Awakens. I, I can tell you a couple of things that I think are, Force Awakens definitely has in its favor in terms of being a better movie. Um, if you think about, in particular, the introduction of Finn to Poe and how that those scenes go, and I can tell you that that still provides me with, like a gut visceral emotional reaction like in a very positive way that 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 it's done clever it's funny the pacing is really great like it feels like meeting two people that i want to be friends with a long time and i don't have that kind of connection to any character in this movie even having just one film of each of them so that sort of execution tonally and just where that is is far superior on force awakens but i feel like to some degree I'm grading Force Awakens on a big curve because it had the benefit of bringing back characters I really want to see for the first time in a long time. And, you know, bringing Han Solo and Leia into a set is going to create tension and create interest and passion for me, no matter what you do, pretty much, right? Having, you know, Luke Skywalker as this sort of looming figure throughout the entire film is going to create a lot of tension for me that this movie doesn't have the advantage of to the same degree of a force awakens the other thing i'd say is i think that the degree of difficulty was higher for this movie because we already have the ending and the beginning not just one side of it and because it is meant to be out of sequence and do something different and tries to do something different both tonally and structurally to other star wars movies and so while i think I will probably end up over time watching Force Awakens a lot more than I'll watch this movie. I almost want to say that the job to be done was way harder, and they did it successfully with this movie. I'm more confident about Star Wars coming out of this movie than I was coming out of Force Awakens, where I enjoyed Force Awakens, but felt like 
it doesn't make me think that episode eight or episode nine are set up to be great necessarily. Someone could still fall down harder in their butt um, with those next movies. And I was just relieved that that Force Awakens itself was was good. But it, it didn't guarantee that setup. Whereas I feel like because this steps outside a little bit, um, and is the first one that tries to do something different and was pretty good. Now I feel comfortable to say, okay, I get what they're doing with these non-saga movies. There's a reason for those non-saga movies to exist. And I think that we can get really great films uh, that are in the Star Wars universe that are not about that main core set of characters, which I think we all felt had to be true, but this is a confirmation of that. And I think that that was a really difficult thing to pull off. And I'm, I feel like now I know how I'm going to get a Star Wars movie every year. And this, if this is the floor, I'm going to be thrilled. The other thing I'd say is I came away from this movie thinking to myself, I feel more confident than ever that doing prequels was not a bad idea. And that George Lucas was just a terrible filmmaker by the late nineties because if you think about the way that this movie was done, imagine doing it, but with that core cast of characters and doing it over the course of three movies and expanding the scope only maybe five years earlier. And that could have been a really compelling, well done, beautifully executed prequel trilogy that we never got. It makes it even more frustrating to me that those movies exist because I feel like in the hands of a competent filmmaker, now I see even more than before that the, idea of doing three movies about something that happened before these events it was not what handicapped lucas in making those films episode one two and three i think we can firmly say after watching this movie that there was no handicap by going backwards that it was very possible to create compelling stories through this origin process and not feel bogged down and not have all of the problems that those movies had and again, I'm not sure that anyone thought otherwise, but it feels like walking out of this movie, I'm even more frustrated that those movies exist because I feel like I wish that somebody now, today, was going to have the opportunity to make those films who were not George Lucas because there's a really interesting and compelling story and world that exists prior to Star Wars. And I would be happy to live there again. Unfortunately, we have the canonical version of those stories, and I'd rather pretend like they don't exist. Yeah, well, I just had the thought as you're talking, thinking about how many franchises have been rebooted recently that like it's not entirely <laughs> inconceivable that they could totally reboot the prequels and come up with a completely different story. And I think that would actually be I, I don't think they will because it would just be really complicated to pull off, try and convince people that, OK, we're going to retell only three of these stories, um, you know, different from how George Lucas told them. But I think they have uh you know there's a lot of opportunity there that they could capitalize on i wish that i felt that that was possible because i think theoretically i want to see what those movies are without the burden of lucas but i think that it's it's way hard i think that one of the things this movie proves is that it's not necessary that they could just tell other stories in this universe without having to go back to that well um and to deal with that with the detritus left over of the feelings that everyone has about those movies. And then I think um, I would be very surprised if Lucas did not stipulate some stuff about the canon um, that maybe is not public in part of the sale, especially around the prequels. I think clearly Disney had it within their power to determine what was canon and not within sort of the expanded universe and some of that other stuff. But I would not doubt 
that Lucas still had some influence on those films being considered canonical films and not being retread. They um they kept the CG Clone Wars series canon, right? I think but so, not yeah. the not the Gendy Tartakovsky um, cell animated one. I don't know. I'm not sure. Real quick, let me check. Continue. Well, so the the reason the reason I I mention that is because as much as the um, the prequel trilogy suffered from Lucasitis, um, you know the the Clone Wars series, which I've only watched a, a few seasons of, but you know it's set between Episode two and Episode three, and it you know it is a kids show, so there's like goofy Jar Jar centric episodes that you can kind of ignore but uh the the way it shows uh anakin as like extremely powerful and petulant and like kind of having a disturbing uh emotionally abusive relationship with padme and like some of the undercurrents there are so much a clearer setup for him becoming someone as evil as Darth Vader uh, that I, I, I feel like I can kind of focus on those uh, over the rest of the problems with the prequel series, um, at, at least as far as I've gotten um, a couple seasons in. So you're correct. Star Wars The Clone Wars, which is the CG animated one, is canon. But Star Wars Clone Wars, which is the hand animated one, is not canon. <laughs> well, at least it's not confusing. Yeah. Right. It's it's too bad because the hand animated one had a had a very cool um, stylized combat. It had a really it. good aesthetic to it. To yeah. Be honest. Yeah. Uh, which it's I suppose that, that still that. stands, admittedly, but it's you know none of it is actually important to the story anymore. I mean, I have thoughts about the stuff from the expanded universe that they made non-canon anyway. So. So um, yeah, I I mean I I guess. Uh, like I was saying, it's it this this is a different kind of movie, but like I mean, compared to some of the EU novels that at various points fans have called for being turned into uh, or adapted into movies, Wrong like trilogy. Th- yeah yeah for for one, um, you know this had this started as an EU novel that became a movie, like this would be a really good um, example of uh, what you can do when the sort of executive producer team at Disney, I guess, Disney and Lucasfilm, can find the right uh, creatives to to put together a good movie without Lucas in the Star Wars universe. And and yeah, like Jason said, I mean it gives me a lot of hope that they can they can pull off a a young Han Solo recasting. They can pull off a a Boba Fett story, which I think is rumored for the one in um in 2020 you know that 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 disney kind of you know doing what they've done with the marvel films where they have a franchise of characters that comes together sometimes and stays in their own movies sometimes and the movies kind of fit into different genres you know some of them are are action some of them are spy thrillers some of them are you know um period pieces and and other things that we can kind of see that starting to come for uh the star wars as a franchise on film once a year and and be you know reasonably satisfied with the output to even you know full-on excited about what they're doing with it and and that's pretty cool you know i i look forward to seeing uh you know the the new lego sets and whatnot right so we're kind of looping into context since we did the rating and ranking thing um but i'd love to go back to 
what I'm going to guess is going to end up being the most controversial thing about this movie at the end, which is which is the ending of the film, because I want to make sure we talk about that before we move on, and our thoughts on the destruction of pretty much every character that's introduced uniquely into this movie. I've I've heard the argument, um, even within the last thirty minutes, that they had to remove. They they did that so that because the characters never show up in any of the other movies, but I feel like that didn't matter. I mean, yeah, I I, I it, agree with you there. I don't. The think series takes there. place in a galaxy. I mean, they they could go other places. Right. So, I don't think that's the reason, which I think makes it more important that they did that. You know, I I feel like their deaths meant something um you know they they did what they were supposed to do and you know jen is basically by herself now her mom passed away many years ago her dad has now passed away she did what she needed to do to put him to rest and you know now she's ready to go yeah i suppose in a little bit that's foreshadowed um, by Saul Guerrera on Jeddah when he's like, "No, I'm I'm done running," and basically tells them to leave him to die. Um, that that sort of foreshadows how everyone else then, you know, or at least uh, Jin and Cassian are at the very end of the movie. Which is weird because uh, he seemed pretty infirm and needed a breathing apparatus. I mean, it, he. He was a lot older than them. He had been through a lot. I, I don't know if that's necessarily foreshadowing. We, we've we seen that sort of I suppose. Of it just, it's, yeah. I don't know. The thought occurred to me. So I, I was happy that they did this. If yeah. only for the reason that it, it felt super daring to me and super confident that they were willing to create very compelling characters to some degree. And I mean, we talked earlier about them maybe not being fully characterized, but like I would have liked to have seen some of these characters in another movie more fully fleshed out. I would have liked to have potentially seen movies that took place concurrent with the original trilogy that showed more detail and doing the war movie thing as part of star Wars Um, and closing that loop. It's, it's a little daring. It shows, I think, more flexibility than I expected with such a important and precise sort of franchise, like where, where it really is being managed very strongly and heavily as a franchise. And it makes me feel more confident that they're going to take risks in these kinds of movies. Um, so maybe not for the sake of this story, but within the context of future star Wars filmmaking, I feel like if I were a creative out there who wanted to tell a Star Wars story, I would look to the fact that all these characters died at the end and say that I'm not going to be held back by the studio and by the needs of a franchise to tell the story the way I want it to be told. Because, look, they just killed all these characters with great young actors and actresses who could have lots of role to play. And, I mean, some of the characters like Donnie Yen, like, I would have watched him in a universe where the Force begins to become much more real again and be really curious about that. And I could imagine him somehow coming back in the loop and being a part of Luke's story after Return of the Jedi and as he's trying to reestablish the Order. Like, there's an interesting character and story that could have been told there that was fascinating, and they they cut that right off. And I'm okay with that because, again, I think it shows a willingness 
to do the things they need to do to make me feel like I can produce a Star Wars movie every year and tell a great story because we have this rich and expansive universe to live in. Well, frankly, it, if they're going to uh, stick to the once-a-year release schedule, they better be doing something different with each of these anthology films because otherwise it's just going to be boring as hell. But it'd be so easy not to, right? Especially with the first one. Yeah, that that's what I'm saying, though. It they They certainly could, but if they don't, it's going to be boring. So it, I... I think it was a good decision to do something that's uh, not the same as everything else, which I I think was um, kind of the idea behind the whole thing in the first place. I mean, that that's why they're not part of the saga. They're anthology films. I thought their ending uh, of it was a really strong way to basically set apart the film and say that, you know, this is a star Wars film that takes place in the star wars universe but it's not star wars uh you know and that helped really set it the tone became so much so drastically different from the tone of the rest of the movies because of the the decision that they made there perhaps there needs to be a minimum number of lightsaber fights before it's considered a star wars film i think luke has yeah. stipulated that in the bill of sale yeah I'd be really happy to have a maximum number. This way we can cut episode three out. We barely get lightsabers in this movie, so it's just a story. It's not a saga. Mm. Yeah, and it, uh, for it to be a proper lightsaber fight, there has to be more than one lightsaber. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good point. I, I wasn't sure that, on that note that Darth Vader needed to be in this movie at all, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily bad that he is. I just don't think it's super necessary. Well, we can come back to later why you're wrong about that. <laughs> I, I'd actually like to discuss so, that right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I also have thoughts on, on Darth Vader's appearances in this. So I don't, I don't know. You want to go first, uh, Jason? Or Well, let's make, yeah. a little, make, make a little list here. We'll talk about Darth Vader. Then we can talk about CGI Uncanny Valley. And then yeah. And we can talk about K2SO. Oh, I was okay. about to say, K2SO so, is the only character we haven't talked about yet. And I, I like that list. Yeah. Um. I, I need to leave before too long, um, and I, I'm mostly invested in K2SO and the Uncanny Valley bet. I think well, let's, let's keep this tight. Let, no, let's keep it tight. All right, and, okay, uh, quickly. So very quickly on Vader, I think that the ending of this movie and the very ending with the tension of them passing the plans along was brilliantly executed. I thought it yes. was great that it led all the way up straight to Leia. I felt the tension in that moment. It was really powerful to show as much as the rest of the movie i think was trying to show that it was so close that everything was so close that was the moment where it realized like this entire rebellion is about to hinge on this like push through and it was great and the reason why darth vader needed to be in this movie is because i think he was necessary for that scene and if he hadn't been in the movie prior to that i think we would have been paying too much attention to his coming onto the scene to feel the tension of that moment so i think it was good that he was in the movie a little bit earlier i think it was good that he was a part of that story and that chase because that was the most one of the most fulfilling moments in this entire movie was that it really built up to that precise and frantic and exciting passing of the plans one step along the way that it finally got out and that the sacrifice we just saw actually had meaning Although I, I think Leia was a little too calm at the end. That didn't really seem to fit. 
So I would love to just talk about Uncanny Valley unless someone's going to disagree with me on Vader because they're wrong. Well, I think that I think that the scene with Vader and Krennic was not really was kind of superfluous. I don't mm, think it gave yeah. us any new information. Like we already it, knew that Krennic was overconfident, and it seemed likely that he was going to get his comeuppance. So it it didn't really uh, add anything for Vader to like humiliate him further. I like the... that we saw Vader's fortress, which I think had previously been established in one of the old EU yeah. books and is now back. That was cool. But it also brought what I think was the worst dialogue in the film. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I it was definitely love... kind of kitschy. I agreed. And I don't think I loved the use of Vader necessarily before the ending, but I think he had to be in there somewhere so that the ending worked. And so. I feel like I they could have could... stuck him in some background shots or maybe alluded to him being around or something. <laughs> well, it, it fit a little bit with the way he shows up on the Death Star in A New Hope. You know, the way he's talking to Tarkin about the technological terror. Like, it's pretty clear that Vader is not supporting the construction of the Death Star uh, as, like, a general project, right? Like, he's there pretty begrudgingly early on in in a new hope and and we see that now a little bit with this where like you know he he doesn't really care about krennic's argument he's you know off been busy i guess exterminating jedi and like he becomes the enforcer who goes out after the plans and we see that continue into the original movie but like um he is not invested in the death star that almost seems like something they could have explored more in this movie if they wanted to like his his opposition to it, but yeah. Anyway, does well, to some else degree, have any thoughts? Go ahead. Uh, to some degree, Vader rises to sort of the number two position over the course of A New Hope and into Empire. Like we see that he's not quite number two yet, even though he's clearly the favored son of of the Emperor. And so I think it would have been a little bit more interesting to, like you said, explore this idea of him being more of that. Um, I don't know the the rankings properly, but at the lieutenant level. Um, and sort of moving his way up to command. Um, but like I said, I think the important thing was they needed to, I think, have him in the movie prior to the ending to make the ending work. And so those scenes, while not the best, I think weren't bad enough uh, that I be- begrudge him. You know, it could have been used better, but it was okay the way they used him. So since we've talked now a little bit about both uh, Leia and Tarkin, how do we uh, how do we feel about that that uncanny valley and the you know the usage of um, uh, CG to to reproduce actors who weren't there. Uh, I listened to the uh, incomparable episode before we went. Oh no! I I was expecting it to be a lot worse. Um, I I think uh, I I think you had to have uh, Tarkin in the movie, and I thought it actually looked decent. You know, you you could tell especially when he talked that it was CG, but I didn't think it was all that bad. I mostly agree with you. I don't think Tarkin looked that bad. I think his character needed to be in the movie. And I think the existence of Krennic in in a large part is to get around the fact that they couldn't fully use Tarkin. So that whole arc, while I think it fits with the Tarkin that we know feels like it was their response to like, this is the amount that we can minimize this. I would say that I think Leia looked a lot worse Mm -hmm. and I think it would have been equally effective to just fade to black at that moment and just hear her say hope. Mm 
right? Like, they didn't need her face. They didn't need her to turn around. They could have fade to black and make it clear that's who it was and just use Carrie Fisher's voice. And I think that would have been enough. Mm-hmm. It would yeah, have almost I, been more I agree. painful for them to do that. But, yeah, and I definitely agree that Leia's CG was a little bit worse. But I still think that Tarkin's wasn't very good because it still seemed pretty unnatural to me. And I feel like they could have... I feel like maybe they overstretched a little bit and they probably should have, um, you know, tried to paper over it a little bit more, positioning him in different ways, not showing certain parts of him, things like that, to make it make it less noticeable. It seems like it should have been a practical effect with prosthetics or, so, you know, something. Make the actor look like him. I don't know why... I mean, they did that with um, the guy who played Scorpio in Farscape was Tarkin, a younger Tarkin at the end of episode three, you know, kind of in shadow. And yeah, I feel like both, I, I don't think Tarkin was quite as necessary to the film, although it did establish some of the stuff with Krennic's um, motivation. But uh, I think both the appearances of Tarkin and for sure the appearance of Leia could have been done with just sort of practical traditional filmmaking where you, for whatever reason, you can't fully show a character. They, you know, over the shoulder shots, uh, your body doubles, what have you. And it would have been as effective, if not more effective. That said, um, while uh, I noticed the uncanny valley aspects of the CG and a number of my geekier friends have commented, I've seen multiple people mention that their family members who are maybe less attuned to tech and video games did not realize that they were CG characters. When I told Elsa that that guy had been dead for like 20 years, she was shocked. (laughs) Um, So I think for a lot of people, yeah, yeah. Well, because what it made me think of was, I don't know if you guys saw the Tron Tron Legacy, you know, the the sequel slash reboot. I didn't see it, but I saw some shots of uh, the CG Jeff Bridges. And... Yeah, so they de-aged Jeff Bridges, and uh, that was definitely a technology that was not yet ready. Um, and I feel like this, as a as a technology demonstrator, is really, really close. Like, we are within a couple this of years. This is really, of... really good, but in my opinion, it's just not quite perfect. Right, but you, but you can see so... that within a couple of years, like, we will basically be able to artists will be able to recreate any actor for or any person for which there's sufficient visual um, reference. We, they, they still haven't figured out how mouths move, but well, and I think it's one of those cases where like, it was probably good enough for our eyes today, but Mm -hmm. if I'm going to watch this movie in 10 years, it's probably going to look terrible. I'll be curious how it looks um, uh, when adapted for just on on like a Blu-ray, right? Like just HD, not not on a big screen. Like, will it will it look better or worse in that in that case? Yeah, I mean, it's the same as like how the CG from all the prequels looks very dated at this point. But mm. I remember it seeming pretty realistic at the time. K two S O. Yeah. So I thought K two S O was the breakout star of this film yep definitely a character that like the star wars franchise needed um a droid who provides comic relief but in a sassy confident way as opposed to c-3po who's constantly anxious and kind of annoying to be honest in his mannerisms so k2so just doesn't really care what you have to think and that's kind of refreshing uh 
when paired against or you know viewed against c3po's you know template for this kind of thing well and r2d2 is very sassy uh, but you can't understand him and he can't give you high fives yeah he can't hold a blaster mm-hmm. yeah it, it does worry me a little bit uh that it every uh vision of mine of the robot uprising from now on is going to be voiced entirely by Alan Tudyk. He is so good in this, isn't he? Mm -hmm. I think that this was the character I was most upset that they killed. Yeah. The nice thing is they could potentially have Alan Tudyk come back as another Imperial Enforcer droid if they Mm -hmm. really wanted. That's true. That would be consistent. So... Although I don't recall ever having seen one of those droids before. K2SO origin story time? Yeah? Huh? Huh? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love this character. I love Alan Tudyk in 95% of what he does. I thought he was brilliant in this. And it was... This was the character I felt like, why are they wasting this? We have a long story tradition of droids showing up where they don't belong in this series. Um, and this character could have could have lived a very rich life. I think your point... You have a good point, though, which um, uh, is that, you know, these droids, we don't see them ever again in the, uh, you know, the rest of the films. And the same is true of the Death Troopers, which are those are like a little bit kind of discontinuous with the rest of the series. It's like, well, what happens to these specific, you know, tools that the Empire uses? We just don't see them again. It's like, do they just like they seem useful, but they're not useful enough to be used again in any of the other major events that are depicted. So. Maybe maybe those were the last ones left in the universe. All, all the other ones had already been killed off, and they ran out of uniforms. I did hear the theory that, yeah, basically the reason we don't see the Death Troopers again is because they all got killed, but uh, mm. that doesn't account well, for these droids either. It's like the Blue Squadron. I yeah, think and Red degree. Five. <laughs> I, um, I really appreciate that uh, that callback, but we can get into callbacks later. Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I mean, K2SO, like, they gave him a lot of the laugh lines, but I thought that was okay. And they were so well delivered that it didn't really matter that they were the obvious laugh lines. I mean, at least in, in the theater I saw it at, that was, that was the levity in the movie. Like pretty much any time he said anything slightly sassy, everyone was laughing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. like when, uh, when he said it's high, it's very high. That, that yes. was the, that was so the entire theater uh, burst out. I think we can make the argument about the troops and maybe even to some degree the droids being that once the Death Star exists, it changes the nature of war, right? When you have the ability to destroy planets, who needs that style of infantry? Um, Maybe who needs even that style of droid that could be mostly useful for things like, you know, peacekeeping or enforcement that's not necessary anymore once you have the Death Star. Now what we need is all of our contractors to build more Death Stars, right? Well, they certainly went down that path. I just, you know, I would appreciate an expanded universe novel that sort of explains why we don't see these anymore or something like that. It's like, oh, the program was canceled for some, you know, convoluted made up reason or something just to kind of put a little bow on it or something. Yeah, there's me like wishing it's part of a part of an addendum to a bill or something. Well, I mean, like wishing for an extended universe expanded universe novel feels like something that someone who's never read many expanded universe novels would do the quality there <laughs> yeah uh i'm thinking back to like uh dark saber 
uh, was pretty bad. Uh, I've only read yeah. the Thrawn trilogy, so in my opinion, they're great. I mean, the, yeah, the Thrawn trilogy is good. Uh, it 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 introduces some some uh, problematic plot devices that have uh, it th- thankfully been eliminated, <laughs> such as the Isalmiri uh, force negation effect bubbles. Yeah, that's kind of um, weird. Yeah. I'm just laughing because I was waiting for you to say the word problematic because I knew it was coming. <laughs> problematic. Um, I, so uh, speaking of problematic, I, I didn't uh, notice anything problematic with this movie, but I, I uh, have since seen a few people commenting in uh, criticizing some of the uh, particular choices in characterization. I don't know if you, it's worth bringing those up or uh, or not. Well, why don't we let Harold go so that he can do oh, what yeah, yeah. he needs to do, and then we can continue. <laughs> so I, I must be the only one that saw that message. <laughs> yes. I told him just to drop when he needed to go so that I didn't have to edit, but that's okay. Oh, <laughs> oops. Whatever. That was uh, top secret uh, information. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Stored in a magnetic tape drive on uh, a very, very <laughs> tall tower. Those are some big hard drives. Yeah, let's talk about their backup workflow. Okay, did you guys re- did you guys read the article I posted earlier today about uh, about their storage? I had read media? that earlier, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> what I want to know is who builds a, a tape storage tower like that and makes it so you have to manually select tapes. That's- yeah, I don't. I thought that mechanic was a little bit overwrought as just a way to add tension. Uh, and it didn't really need to. It was kind of unnecessary. Although it's I, I, nice to know what they did with that uh, display from the science museum. Yeah, I don't it, know. It I just thought me, that um, was contrived. Yeah, well, because my uh, my uncle used to work in a in a newsroom in like the '90s into the early 2000s, and they had a Betamax tape switching tower thing. I mean, it was it was just an eight foot tall thing uh but there was a robot arm in the middle and like five walls of either storage or players that it could switch in and out mm-hmm. uh and it it was very much that but scaled up and then combined with uh, obviously the set designers really liked the um like the manipulator arms that you use for like a like a th- for radiation handling like I- isotope handling or something yeah, maybe that's the, maybe they're like radioactive, so you're not supposed to handle them. And Jen would have died anyway because of her exposure to radiation poisoning. We didn't talk at all about whether these crystals um, are basically the new um, mitochondria of the Force kind of thing. I know that they they do exist in the expanded universes, like some details around how lightsabers themselves are constructed. But did anyone else feel like we didn't need the you know, unobtainium metal of the Star Wars world. Uh, I mean, I I guess I maybe I I've spent too much time in the EU, but um, I've it, I I appreciated that they were like making it official that you know Kyber crystals are not just necessary for um, lightsaber construction, but that the the Death Star itself is using them in some significant way. Um, and and I've seen speculation that. 
uh, you know, Star Star Killer base from the Force Awakens is built on the planet Ilum, and that it has unusually large kyber deposits, and that is part of what made that particular hyperspace weapon viable. Was that it? It had to be a planet with a very large amount of uh, of the crystals. I do like yeah. this idea that the that star becomes a force driven weapon in some way, given its destructive power. And I do like the idea of, we know that non Jedi can use lightsabers. So the idea that like, there's a way for non Jedi to access that power and that that's what is driving the death star, I think is an interesting thing, but given the, um, midichlorian feedback, I just thought that yeah. we bring it up a little bit too techno babble for star Wars. I guess they have to have scientists for the Empire. Science I, versus religion. It's politics in Star Wars. I thought it was all right. Um, I didn't think it was as contrived as like the midichlorians were because I was fine with the midichlorians existing as a kind of ethereal, undefined force and then giving them this reason for being that didn't really seem to make a lot of rational sense was just kind of unnecessary. But kyber crystals... Like, it makes sense you need some kind of active ingredient, right, to make a, uh, you know, a giant laser. I mean, lasers have things like, you know, the first lasers use rubies in real life. So it made sense to me from that perspective that you need some kind of resource, right? Some kind of finite, hard-to-get resource. to Harvest power more kyber crystals. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit ob- unobtainium tropey, I guess, but uh, it... It made sense, and it was a convenient plot device to tie the whole thing together. Something um, I really liked about this movie was how it ties almost exactly into um, A New Hope. I mean, they. Yeah. For one thing, I didn't realize. I I assumed that the Alliance had sat on the the plans for at least months. Um, before planning to do anything with them. But, you know, it actually, it's a very short time that, um, that they had these plans. I, I figured this was a long drawn out thing. It took years to happen. Um, but I also like that we can watch Rogue One and flip over to A New Hope and it's completely seamless. I think it actually increases the tension to some degree because we know how important the plans are. And we had that really tense passing along of the plans that almost didn't happen. And then it seems like yet again, they're about to slip out of the rebel alliances fingers. And I almost wonder if rewatching a new hope, like the tension is heightened because you know, just how fragile the coming victory really is feels more acute to me. Yeah, and it also given that, Oh, go ahead. It also characterizes Rogue One, I think, characterizes the Rebellion better is that the Rebellion is literally cobbled together and doesn't really, you know, isn't really cohesive at all. And that changes some of my thoughts about episode four a little bit. Uh, You know, it it adds information there that we didn't have before. That's like um, basically it is a lot more, you know, we're standing on the precipice. And if we take a wrong step, we could fall down and the whole thing could collapse. 
in 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 particular the way it enhances a new hope i mean definitely the just the pacing tie-in of of the conclusion and you know seeing seeing leia receive the plans on on 10 4 and and presumably very shortly thereafter being pursued by darth vader's star destroyer uh, uh in orbit of tatooine um but that it kind of explains why um you know the 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 rebels were only able to commit a few squadrons of fighters to attack the Death Star, even at their apparently large home base. Is we just saw their their fleet, their capital ship fleet, be decimated over Scarif, right? Like now we know that they committed. I mean, maybe not entirely with the approval of the Alliance leadership, but they committed kind of everything they had to get the plans. Um. Well, and I think on on top of that. It it back justifies things like why wouldn't a guy like Han Solo be aligned with the Rebel Alliance? Why would Obi Wan still be hiding in the desert? Right? Because the reality was there was very little hope. I think amongst folks who were not directly in those rooms, who knew at this very moment that for the first time we might get an upper hand, just as the Empire is saying that they're, they're going to have the final upper hand. Like this is a ragtag, barely put together team. So of course. If you're a smuggler, you're not thinking what I'd really like is to get out from the thumb of the Empire. You're thinking, like, I got to hide, right? And and so I think it, it makes it feel less like uh, – my impression watching A New Hope all these years was that this rebellion had been going on since basically the start of the Empire. And that, yeah, it had been a relatively even fight even, right? That, that, that the Death Star was going to be the thing that really changed – the fortunes of the empire to really tighten its stranglehold because it's been struggling against this relatively even meshed rebellion of the old Senate. But instead, I think what we see is that like the empire won totally. It was a, it was a total victory and the death star was just it tightening its grasp. And it was normal for them to have underestimated the rebellion because there wasn't much of a rebellion to talk about. I mean, the rebellion could basically make it so that places like Tatooine could keep guys like Jabba the Hutt in business and not much more. Yeah, I mean, what happened on Scarif is that the rebel fleet showed up and it turned out the rebel fleet was pretty small, not very imposing, and then they sent two Star Destroyers to oppose it and did a pretty good job. And they certainly have way more than two Star Destroyers to waste, so like, what's the concern? Yeah, and I I think um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I haven't um, I haven't finished uh, uh, Clone Wars, but I mean, what we kind of know from the prequel trilogy is that the you know the Emperor, well, Palpatine was playing both sides of the Clone Wars, and so all of the evenly matched fleets of the Separatist ships and the Republic proto Star Destroyers were then fully committed to the Imperial war machine right like there wasn't anyone left making well and all the stars ships. or all the uh confederate ships were thrown away but well okay but but my 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 point being that that you know the empire more or less had a monopoly except for mon Cal cruisers on capital ship creation except for the few ships that these few uh alliance aligned senators managed to hide uh you know after the Clone Wars. Well, and I think uh, we see that even in the the canonical prequel films, right? Is that like, if you're watching that and you really know the original trilogy, you realize that both sides that are fighting become Palpatines, 
right? right. <laughs> you know, we're, we're watching two sides of the Empire fight itself, and the Empire is going to win. Um, but I don't think that it hit me until watching this movie just how complete and total their victory was and just how wrong my reading all these years of A New Hope really was. So is that is it bad that uh, you know this movie significantly changes our interpretation of aspects of A New Hope? I mean, I think, at least... For me, this story of the plans and the whole thing with Galen, you know, intentionally creating this vulnerability um, actually makes A New Hope work better because you always had to kind of suspend disbelief that the Empire would design something so flawed. Um, Yeah, I think it ties up a big loose end in in the form of the thermal exhaust port question from episode four. That it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, totally right. As as someone who works in uh, security software engineering, like you can imagine ways for a single designer to uh, put a small innocuous backdoor into a design that no one would really notice, you know, through all of the reviews and and construction and process, you know, no one's going to question it, right? Especially um, on a sized battle station. I can't imagine how many design reviews that thing would <laughs> Well, and, and it's like, it's the equivalent of, like, I'm not actually protecting against a botnet. I'm thinking about a single really highly skilled person trying to infiltrate here, which I think is very easy to understand why that would slip in, because it's not the primary threat model that those reviews are going to be looking at. So, uh, I agree. I think it enhances it. I think it makes it I think it takes away some of the plot holes. And and to my earlier point, it shows that you can do prequels with predefined ending without painting and, in fact, enhancing the understanding of the original story. Like, that is a real thing that can be done with skilled writing. George Lucas can't do that. Right. Yeah, I think my, my only complaint related to that is that is as important as it was for the Death Star to do those small firings, I think it kind of cheapens the destruction of Alderaan, even though we now know that that's the first time the Death Star fired at full power, um, just by having seen it used. But I think that just gets back to the whole like viewing order question, that if you are new to Star Wars, you probably should watch it in release order. But if you are returning to Star Wars, you now have the option of, of seeing this actually really great pairing of Rogue One directly into A New Hope. I feel like if you want to watch it in that order, which I think can make sense, you really should watch these movies back to back, almost no pause. Yeah, I, I think uh, if 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 my schedule had allowed it, I would have wanted to come home and and fire up uh, uh, the despecialized edition that fell off a truck of A New Hope. Is there any other kind? I mean, I still have my old uh, VHS copies, uh, but I have no means of playing them. Yeah, I mean, I only watch Despecialized at this point. So do you guys... So like I was saying, I really like that it tied the two movies so tightly together. There's no space in between. Do you guys think they could do the same thing with 4 and 5 and 5 and 6? Is there enough going on in between? Like it's 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 always bothered it's me implied, that there's, there's a, at least for four to five, it's implied that quite a lot happened between the two films, right? But there's a year, there's a year between four and five, and three years between five and six. So, well, I think Shadows of the Empire, right, is the model for five to six, which I thought was actually a pretty good story. 
I'm less convinced that you could do between four and five. Uh, just because I feel like the thing that's most compelling for me between four and five is learning more about the characters we're just not going to see anymore. Yeah, like what what happened to getting set up on Hoth and what you know all, what what Han was up to. You know why he why he integrated himself so thoroughly with the Alliance leadership. Um, those sort of questions. I I think we might find out in the... Uh, so it hasn't been announced, but my understanding is that the um, the Star Wars story slate... So obviously, Episode 8 is 2017. Episode... Or, yeah, Episode 9 is 2019. Uh, 2018 is the Han so- young Han Solo, young Lando story. And I think that's been pretty well confirmed because there's been casting announcements and so 2020 is rumored to be the boba fett story and i could imagine that ending you know with him heading for vader's heading for the executor to 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 receive this bounty from vader right because that's that's in in the original trilogy that's the first time we see boba fett I think they actually did a pretty good job in the original trilogy of, of highlighting the points that matter. Maybe the one thing I miss is is more of how Luke becomes more of a complete Jedi. But um, again, I don't think they're going to show that story. So for me, like, what is the fallout of the end of the Death Star? Does How does that start to swell the ranks of the Rebel Alliance? Like, who gets recruited from that? What is the fallout structurally from the empire what do they decide to start doing differently and i can imagine there being one movie that sort of starts post destruction of the first death star and maybe goes through to um the knights of ren let's say but is told mostly from the empire's perspective and that might be a really interesting movie or two i also think like one of the big questions that i still have is um you know what else happened between episode three and four that wasn't covered by this movie like you know, at the end of episode three, we see Palpatine and Vader and Tarkin looking at the construction of the Death Star. But it's like, where did Tarkin come from? And like, how did all how did the Empire get put together? Because it just kind of suddenly appeared. So how did all how did all of this kind of come together? And then like, what else were they plotting? What were they doing during this whole time when the rebellion was kind of trying to get organized? I mean, not to get uh, current day topical, but isn't it pretty much that the Empire is just uh, the old Republic reskinned? I mean, it's it's you're taking the existing deep spa- deep state and putting it under a single autocratic Emperor Palpatine instead of a you know loose coalition of of planets uh, represented by the Senate. I guess I feel like that hasn't been adequately explained. Yeah, I I I would say it seems odd that the Death Star construction timeline is on the order of 20 years um i think i can square that with the timing between a new hope and return of the jedi in that it's not complete as of return of the jedi and presumably making the second one is a lot easier than making the first one in some ways um it is awfully fast though still yeah but and the eu kind of touches on the whole super weapons question but I've, I've read some interesting stuff like there's that that infamous paper where the guy calculates the galactic uh gdp necessary to build like what it's it takes something like two to three percent of the entire galaxy's output to construct the death star over the course of 20 years uh according to one you know set of economic calculations and 
So you can imagine both uh, what you had alluded to earlier with um, the how the Empire would react to the destruction of the Death Star. You can certainly imagine that uh, that would have been kept very quiet. You know that that uh, a bunch of families would have gotten notification that their their beloved son in the uh, in the Tie Fighter Corps had been killed by nefarious rebels and no more information than that. Um, that, but that that for lots of reasons it was important that uh, a no one really know that the Death Star had been destroyed and b that the economy of the Empire was now tied into super weapon production in a big way um, because like you said you know they don't need uh, a a constant uh, treadmill of fleets anymore they don't need to be building ships and droid armies constantly anymore. Um, and yet so, they still do. They're still cranking out ships like there's no tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. But but I wonder how much of that is. You know, so if if you try to think of it in in terms of uh, sort of modern day understanding of how uh, wars are used for economic benefit, um, you can imagine that the empire increasingly the state needs of perpetual war. Yeah, that that they need that to maintain the emperor's grasp on power to maintain the you know we we know that a big part of the transition from the old republic to the empire is a significant pivot towards humanity right like uh we consistently see the uh the old republic being a relatively diverse representation of the sapient life in the galaxy and the rebel alliance continuing that tradition although still mostly led by humans uh or or human adjacent uh, species, whereas the empire is just human. Um, you know, there, there's there's some implied uh, species purging going on there that that, uh, like you said, has never been explored uh, the in the space between the end of the Clone Wars and the beginning of um, where where like Rogue One picks up. Um, well, let's not make I, this episode about Trump, but uh... yeah, <laughs> I, I was dancing around that, but. Uh, I am uh, reading now. Basically, it seems like I need to dive into the Star Wars Rebels TV series. And then there's two novels, one called Tarkin and one called Catalyst. Tarkin is obviously entirely about Tarkin. And then Catalyst is actually set before Rogue One and is the lead-in to Rogue One itself. So I might have to go read those to get the detail that I that I want. Yeah, I read the... Um the new uh, officially blessed EU novel that that ties into kind of t- starts to tie into the the force awakens and it was okay um, and that was one that was set immediately after return of the jedi so it's sort of in the uh what do we do now phase of the empire's um, crumbling um, i i'm i'm interested in these these other new uh, sanctions spell novels. I do want to watch Rebels, but I gather it is uh, very much entrenched in the Disney uh, cable verse, and so as a cord cutter, uh, I will have some difficulty obtaining it short of just buying seasons on disc. That's true. That might be a difficulty. So I think uh, we should probably wrap up with one last question, and that is who from this movie would you like to see in a prequel about them 
Well, I don't think you can say gin because this movie is almost entirely about gin. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do whatever you want. It's, yeah. It's Star Wars. I would almost be interested in the story of, um, what's his name? Chirrut and the Church of the Force stuff. And like, what what's, because they just sort of appear out of nowhere. It's like, what do they do and where do they come from? Yeah, I, I think that uh, combined with, um, you know, the the character that Max von Sydow played briefly at the beginning of The Force Awakens, like the whole role of the Church of the Force during the Imperial period, I think there's something really interesting there because these are obviously people who must have served the Jedi Order in some way or at least had some contact with it. You know, they're, they're not the Han Solos who think it's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo you know, they've seen the force used. They can maybe use the force a little or they're force sensitive. They just don't have Jedi training or maybe aren't, you know, uh, weren't, weren't good enough to be sent to the Jedi Academy or had too much dark side in them or I don't know what. Um, I think there's something really interesting there, um, you know, because you, you have these, uh, in the case of, of Chirrut and Malbus, these old men kind of mourning what they've lost and holding on to something that's not there anymore. Um, and uh, them as younger men right in the the end of the older public uh, could be really interesting. I think it would also be good to give Cassian a story as well, just because he doesn't get much character development in this film. I would broadly agree. I think the Church of the Force, um, the folks on Jeddah, I think the story of of the people most connected to the old order of power, but not the political structure maybe would be the most interesting to, to learn more about in my opinion. I mean, the force itself is, is part of what makes star Wars, what it is so fascinating and so interesting. And we, we see what happens when you overdo it in the original prequel stuff, but we haven't, I think really explored what it means culturally, what it means religiously, what it means in a lot of other ways. It, it's sort of off screen in the newer ones because there are so few users of the Force. So that would be the most interesting story to me. I mean, I'd like them to go back a thousand years, right? I'd like to learn more about the the entire start of the Jedi Order. Uh, so that's more like 5,000 years in the uh, Sith mm-hmm. Empire and... Uh... Mm, let me tell you a little bit about Dark Sidious. Um, I'd like them to retcon Palpatine's first name. Uh, is his first name Emperor? No, it's Sheev. Mm. I I wish you'd never told me that. Yeah, you're, I'm sorry. Agreed. First name Emperor, last name Palpatine. Emperor Palpatine. So is know. the book that you read... Uh, Star Wars Aftermath. Yeah, Aftermath is the one I read. Um, so that that was an example of a story that was confined to a single planet, um, and then you know a, a small set of characters that did not uh, have more than just sort of cursory connections. You know, I think the the main character's mom was a rebel pilot. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I liked it, but it wasn't um, it wasn't as good as the best of the old EU. Um, and even the old the parts of the old EU that I really liked, um, you know, like in in particular Dark Empire one and two, a lot of that was just sort of the same story being rehashed again. You know, it, Luke gets tempted, uh, Han and Leia have adventures. There's a super weapon. Uh, 
you know, the annoyingly, the emperor is back as a clone. Like a lot of the worst aspects of the EU are present in some of those stories, even though I really like them um, style wise. So what I... did you guys think about the shield gate? I, I like I like that whole battle. I think um, I had some. I, so so I think I, I already touched on my two main complaints, which was with the was is the CG and then the bad Vader uh, choke joke. Um, but uh, I did have some questions about exactly how the physics of two star destroyers colliding would work because it seems like the one star well, destroyer would I just have thoughts about that too would just kind of bonk the other one like but but I guess if the inertia of the non-moving star destroyer was sufficient what was lower than like the relative strength of its structural members then you could like like each individual beam would collapse before the entire star destroyer would would no, move i'm with you on this one it seemed weird that one star destroyer seemed a lot weaker structurally than the other one that didn't make sense yeah because it seems like the hammerhead would have just sliced through the nose of the first star destroyer like it made yeah, for a cool it, shot it but didn't, it, it, it didn't make sense that the one was getting torn up and the other one seemed like it was still mostly intact it seems like they either both should have been mostly intact or they both should have been breaking up like they're not they're identical designs so but I thought the star or the shield gate in thinking about it, I was like, it kind of makes sense why the um, moon of Endor has a shield generator that doesn't have a gate because they learned their lesson. But the downside of that, of course, is that you have to lower the shield completely to let things through. It felt way too space balls to me personally. It was a little bit. Yeah, I was waiting for the great suck to come. Like I can't, I can't exactly put my finger on what I don't like about it, but it just seemed kind of like a goofy construct that didn't seem necessary. I mean, the the connection to this shield generator on Endor is is a pretty good point. Uh, honestly, when I was watching it, it recalled Spaceballs and not that, and that I think is is my main complaint. That's mm. a point that I had forgotten about, but yeah, it's definitely a Spaceballsy kind of thing. Um, that said, I thought overall that whole battle was pretty well done. I mean, it it showed they they cut in some old alternate film shots from A New Hope uh, with characters. You know, they had the callback to Red Five being killed and that being becoming Luke's call sign. Uh, you know, the the usage of uh, a mixed set of stub fighters, the X wings and the Y wings. Uh, I, I thought overall that was a nice uh, homage, but uh, but as well as doing some more uh, something new that wasn't just the bombing World War II style bombing runs, but didn't have the um, sort of frenetic uh, combat of some of the Force Awakens and definitely some of the prequel ship to ship battles. All right, anyone have any closing statements? Trying to think if there's anything else that I want to complain about. I don't think so. Oh, uh, the whole plugging the ship in, or the plugging the transport in with the cable and the cable getting stuck, that that seemed a little weird, too. Yeah, I wasn't that thrilled with the like physical comedy of the cable not being long enough, recalling Back to the Future to some degree. 
Yeah, it's just like, I don't know that that sequence was totally necessary. And then like, oh, you gotta go to the other uh, thing, and you gotta go to the other station and turn it on, and all that stuff. Same with the dish, where you had to, you turn on, and then it has says that you have to line, align it, and you have to run to a different thing, and align it there, and it's just like, it's a little too contrived. It's it's very uh, video game final level. You know, you got to run around and like unlock each thing in order and have all the key cards and yeah, it's a time trial. You have to yeah yeah to solve the puzzle. Um, I have I have one other aside, which was that they, uh, you know, touching on the Uncanny Valley thing, they did recast a couple characters. They recasted uh, Mon Mothma and they recasted well, sort of. They they used the actress who had played her in a deleted scene in episode three, I guess, and then they recast um, General Dodona, who is the guy who gives the Death Star briefing in A New Hope. Uh, and those both seem fine. In fact, I had one friend post on Facebook that he didn't realize that he thought Mon Mothma was also CG. Uh, he didn't realize that it was a different actress in, you know, good makeup. Yeah, I think that that's actually the counterpoint to what they could have done with, with Tarkin, right? Was that, yeah. that, that worked perfectly well, and it was, it reminds me a lot almost of, like, the Brady Bunch movie where, it, you know, you could get it so close, actually, that it's not even noticeable to someone who's not looking at them side by side. Yeah. yeah Mon Mothma looked fine to me. I mean, even if it was different, I think we're somehow able to forgive human likenesses. The differences between human likenesses a little bit more than a CG likeness. Maybe if only because their motions and mannerisms are more natural. Yeah. And and speaking of motion, I think related to that, the the fact that a different physical actor played Darth Vader was noticeable. Like, I don't know what it was about David Prowse's acting or build or what, but just the way Vader moved, uh, especially in the scenes in his fortress, was very different. Uh, and I think whoever played, I, I assume that wasn't James Earl Jones in a suit, uh, whoever played the physical Darth Vader, and presumably it wasn't Hayden Christensen either, um, needed to study the original a little more. Um, but but I'm getting into pretty nitpicking territory because as as far as closing statements go, I I really like this. I would put it, um, you know, right in the middle of the original trilogy. In a lot of ways, it's hard to compare, but um, you know, it's it's certainly better than the bad parts of Jedi. Um. Apparently, there are two actors who portrayed Darth Vader in this film. I suppose I could have looked that up too, but yeah, I, I think. Uh, let me see. Spencer Wilding could have uh, worked on his uh, movements a little differently. Jason, any closing thoughts? I just would say what I said before, which was I was happy. I I don't always think that they made the best decisions on risks or that they made the best single standalone movie. But overall, I'm really happy that they did what they did and were allowed to do what they did. And it makes me feel good about Star Wars and the future of Star Wars. Yeah, and I think um, I think they did a good job, and I think it's uh, a movie that's that I will be happy to introduce my children and grandchildren too uh, when I show them the full uh, series yeah. as opposed to one, two, and three. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think this sets up the anthology series of movies very well. It sets a good 
bar for them to meet. And as far as its financial success is concerned, it kind of guarantees that the franchise attempts will continue. Yeah, I'm all for more Star Wars movies if they are like this one. Yep. Uh, I just want to highlight one thing I, I noticed on uh, on Wikipedia, which is that one of the filming locations was in Iceland in the mountains of Hjörleifshufi and Myrdalsandur, which sounds like Star Wars locations in themselves because I can't pronounce Icelandic. Uh... Anyway. <laughs> Nobody can. Not even You them. can cut that out. Okay, yeah, I'll probably cut it a couple minutes, not minutes, like a minute ago. This will never air anyway. Thank you for listening. You can find the show at thiswillneverair.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The show is Never Air Podcast. Mike is Mike Busterfeld. Andrew is A. Huster. Jason is Jason Becker. Nick is Ultranerd, and I'm Princess Harold. <laughs>